Hello everyone and welcome to Making Remote Work. Today I have the pleasure of welcoming Mark van Vogt, Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at the Freie Universität in Amsterdam. Mark, welcome to Making Remote Work. Hello, Julia. Would you be okay, Mark, to introduce yourself shortly and your research? Uh, yes. Um, where to start? Well, I'm, I'm uh, currently uh, at the Freie Universität Amsterdam. Uh, I'm the um, uh, head there of the organizational psychology section, uh, and um, we also have the Amsterdam Leadership Lab uh, at the VU, where we try to build bridges between the theory and the research we do, and um, uh, delivering knowledge, practical knowledge for practitioners. And that's um, a leadership lab consisting of maybe 10 staff members, uh, but many more affiliates, national and international affiliates from various backgrounds and various disciplines who all have an interest in uh, in leadership. Um, I've been working at the Free, uh, Free Universität now for about 10 years. And before that, I was in the UK working at uh, different universities um, as a, um, a psychologist in the Department of Psychology. And um, since probably about 2000 or so, I've... Uh, uh, gotten very interested in leadership, uh, and so most of my work is is actually on leadership. But I also have uh, projects uh, looking at, uh, for example, intergroup relations, uh, cooperation, uh, and also some practical topics like uh, sustainability. Um, how do you get people to change their behaviors in sort of pro environmental ways? Um, yeah, that's that's about it. And um, I have a research group with uh, various PhD students working on various projects from uh, the neural correlates of charismatic leadership to um, how do you uh, optimize uh, remote leader-follower relationships in a virtual environment. I think this will be very interesting, especially for remote leaders, uh, either, who, either, either those who are just starting up uh, companies who are working all remote or leaders who have just found themselves during this pandemic having to lead teams uh, remotely. So uh, I think this will be a, a great discussion. But let me ask you first, do you like working remote? Um, some aspects of it I do like. Uh, so uh, we know from all kinds of uh, theories about human motivation that uh, there are three core needs that uh, humans have as a, as a particular sort of social species. One is autonomy, of course. Well, we get plenty of that uh, in a sort of remote working environment, particularly at universities, uh, where we don't have um, a boss who is zoomed in on us 24-7. Uh, uh, so a lot of autonomy. But um, the other two motivations uh, that humans crave are relatedness and competence. I think for both... Uh, the virtual world is, is not yet ideal, not for me at least. Uh, I do miss uh, uh, relating to my um, colleagues um, in a way that is probably more natural, uh, the natural affiliative behaviors from touching to laughing with each other. And, uh, that I think is a little bit more problematic in the sort of remote uh, or the virtual environment. And the other is competence. It's, it's, I think, really the, the sort of mentoring aspects of my work uh, as a leader, which 
uh, are more difficult, I think, to um, uh, develop in a uh, remote uh, setting. Uh, the mentoring that you do with PhD students when you uh, when they walk into your office, if they have a problem with uh, statistical analysis or an exciting result uh, to report or uh, you have to organize everything, every meeting. And that, um, I think, is goes probably against some of our natural ways of affiliating, particularly in a sort of mentor uh, mentorship uh, relationship. I was going to ask you this. Is there a mismatch between how we have evolved to work together and the way we are doing it now? Whether that's normal going to the office and especially now during the pandemic? Uh, yes, well, there are many mismatches, of course, uh, but uh, our lives have probably been mismatched since the um, agricultural revolution already 12,000 years ago um, when we started to live in villages and cities and started to develop agriculture and domesticate our animals and whatever. With that, a lot of problems have emerged for which we have found all kinds of cultural solutions eh, because we are a very culturally intelligent species. Uh, we can innovate. Um, but um, what I'm arguing uh, in my work is that not all, all innovations are necessarily good on the long term. Some even can cause more problems uh, than uh, they originally uh, were proposed to solve. And so, um, but um, if we go to this uh, particular um, uh, time where um, many of us are, are forced to um, work from home. Um, one obvious mismatch is that we've evolved to uh, interact uh, with each other in face-to-face -face ways. Uh, that means that uh, body language is very important. Bonding is also very important. Building trust is very important. But that's all done very naturally and progressively, gradually, uh, as you meet people or work. But you also talk a little bit about your private lives. Uh, you have a drink with each other in the bar after work. And so trust develops naturally in those kinds of um, uh, situations where we see each other face to face. And so we really have to think very hard whether uh, remote work um, can address some of these um, uh, problems that we have of not having these sort of natural, naturally occurring, spontaneous, informal interactions with one another. I, think, I see that as the, the big challenge. Definitely. And then I'm, um, I'm even inclined to ask you, do you think this will last or is it just something we are trying right now, right? We, we, we have been trying for some years. We are now forced into it. Some companies in the meanwhile went back to working from the office, right? And mm -hmm. and didn't work remote anymore. Do you think it's just a phase we are going th uh, through? And then because we are built up in a different way, at some point we will realize that we are missing these relationships. We are missing, the uh, we, we, we are not creating enough trust or enough mm -hmm. engagement. And then we will go back to working uh, together in an office. I think, I mean, probably the answer is uh, that it's not either or. Eh? So uh, I can easily conceive of a future where we learn from this uh, experiment that has been forced upon us uh, big time uh, and that we um, develop some sort of concept of blended working, uh, like you have blended learning. Uh, blended learning is actually quite effective. It is 
both online and offline. It's both uh, attending lectures online by your favorite teachers, but also working together in small groups of students uh, on particular problems face to face. And so I think um, the future will probably be a a combination where for some aspects of the work, uh, you can easily uh, do it uh, remotely. Um, Like, for example, you're working uh, on a uh, task that um, doesn't involve a lot of interdependence. or an IT professional working on software, program code. Well, that's uh, why not work on that for a couple of days on your own at home? Um, but as soon as you get into the sort of creative process, um, where team creativity is uh, very important, then I think uh, it's probably best, and 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 our. Uh, brains and minds are best evolved to deal with those sort of creativity, innovation problems via face-to-face interactions where you sit together in a room, maybe at one and a half meters distance in a new um, (laughs) field, but still where you uh, build up on each other's work, you brainstorm. uh, Brainstorming is is, uh, probably not so easily done virtually. I can see for those aspects, uh, people will uh, still um, uh, have to uh, go face to face. And the same with new teams. eh? So people often forget that. But building trust in uh, a new team, a new project team, is very hard uh, if you uh, have only seen each other um, uh, via the computer. However much these um, uh, technologies have improved. Um, But... um, there's still something missing that is a sort of a, a basic level of trust. I mean, uh, we rely on all kinds of senses uh, when we um, um, evaluate people, not just what we see, but also what we hear, what even our smell, our taste, etc. All these things are involved in a interaction, a uh, face-to-face interaction, and they're more difficultly done remotely, I would say. So... I think the the answer is we'll probably learn from this experiment by picking out the things that go well. That is, hey, maybe for not not for all tasks we need a face to face meeting, uh, but also a realization that for others we definitely do. I think that's that makes it uh, this an interesting time. It is a time in which more and more will be trying to work remotely. I have just uh, watched yesterday an uh, interview with uh, one of the biggest leaders in uh, India, and they are planning to move 80% of their workforce remotely. And we are talking about companies like Tata, right? Really, really big ones. So there is a shift towards that right now. How do you think that shift, whether good or bad, will impact how we think about education, leadership, organizational structures, uh, how we build communities, how we collaborate. How do you think things will change from when Yes, in a, I, I think a sort of a bigger perspective uh, on this is um, let's forget about the pandemic for a moment because at some point this may, may be over. But uh, what you see in uh, happening in, um, in human evolution or in human history was a, a shift from uh, physical labor to brain labor, if you like, uh, intellectual power, brain power. And so uh, from the Industrial Revolution, we were, uh, where basically your um, labor was physical, 
maybe with most people was was physical, but was then replaced by engineering machinery, etc. We're now in a digital uh, revolution due to uh, the uh, information technologies that we have available, uh, and most of our work is now intellectual, uh, cognitive. That means all kinds of things uh, for our education. So a lot of effort is put on. Uh, our ability to do mental tasks, our cognitive ability. Um, and so, but with that also comes, and that's, I think, very interesting for uh, a sort of a digital environment in which we work and learn is um, that we need to learn to uh, study and monitor each other's uh, emotions um, in, a, um, in a better way. So, what really I think is, is going to happen is a sort of new age of empathy, whereby even though we work and learn remotely from each other, we are very much in tune to each other's needs. It's really important to build up trust, for example. That means that we actually may do digital working environment and learning environment. We need to train people to be more empathic. That is, pay attention to... Uh, the kind of things that people don't say. Pay attention to uh, people who are uh, silent in these virtual meetings. How do you get them uh, uh, be involved and engaged in the process? And so I think that's um, uh, really crucial. And I think that has implications. For example, uh, look at gender difference, for example. Um, uh, the workplace in some uh, aspects was very much male-dominated. Uh, all kinds of symbols of status and power that you could show off at uh, the big office that you have, the big company car, um, the, the way you dressed, and all these sort of symbols of status are virtually meaningless, I think, in a virtual world. Not completely meaningless. I'm wearing a tie for this occasion. Uh, <laughs> but, but um, and so, but what then becomes important is that if you cannot express your leadership through sort of dominance, I call it, uh, by showing what you can control people, you have to do it in a different way. Call that prestige leadership. Eh? You have to show your competence. You have to show your relational skills. You have to show that you're in tune, that you're empathic. And I think that opens up uh, all kinds of niches for people who maybe weren't considered leadership material um, uh, before, like women leaders, for example. It's, I think, just one of the, the implications. Moving a bit and, and staying a bit with empathy, isn't this harder to build online? Isn't it always that we, because we connect easier face-to-face -face and we understand who the other person is way better it's not always an us versus them kind of feeling, whereas virtually it's way easier. I see that in the gig economy, right? Mm -hmm. Where you work with Upwork or any kind of, uh, of platforms where you can hire freelancers. They rarely, candidates rarely get an answer. They get, rarely get anything in reply from employers or they even get very uh, bad, bad or, or rough judgments uh, yeah. immediately because it's, you don't, it's, you're interacting with a computer and not with a person. Isn't yeah. it harder to build empathy when you yes, work uh, remotely? I think it is. Uh, so uh, empathy is really uh, a system that has evolved to 
pay attention to those people who are important to you in, in real time. Yeah, a mother with their children, for example, that's the origin of the empathy, the caregiving system, uh, basically. And so all the cues are there, uh, a baby crying, for example, or uh, somebody in need of a, a cry of help, for example. Uh, but if you remove those cues from an interaction, uh, not a cry for help, uh, not a, a particularly sad or crying face or people who uh, induce sympathy, if you remove those cues, it's actually very hard to activate the empathic system. And that means that our leadership runs the risk of being very directive online and even maybe very dominant, if you like. So we therefore have to train empathic skills in a virtual environment. I think that's really key so that um, uh, we do pay attention to cues that indicate even in an online environment that somebody is not happy, somebody's switching off, somebody's not motivated. I think these kind of things require uh, important skills uh, from uh, from workers in a uh, in a virtual world. If only to get the best out of them, eh? because the motivation aspect is really important. Uh, if you want to get the best out of your employees, you want to have them make an extra effort. You want to have them uh, work extra hours. Uh, you want them to I be think, loyal and stay. I want them to be loyal, yes. So em empathy, I think, will be key in this new age. Now, I think I, I told you when we discussed a bit earlier, I just attended a conference online, which was called Distributed Valley, very, very interesting, with companies that are working all remote, most of them startups, most of them having from eight to about 200 employees. Uh, I think the biggest was uh, GitLab, which has around 1,200 and they work all remote, but the rest were very, very small and quite young. And these were about 20, 20 25 people, but they are all somewhere around the age of 25. Uh, they have discovered an algorithm which works really nice and does uh, various things, right? Most of them in, in uh, uh, concerning social interaction. But they are building teams all remote and they are leaders. And I'm thinking out loud that at that age, you don't have the right maturity, you don't have yet the right skills, and especially moving this remote, right? They might, as you said, fall into this controlling kind of behavior. What kind of uh, advice would you have for them? What should they do? Where should they look? Uh, so they can lead their, their companies in a good way and promote the good behaviors, promote the right values and build loyalty and followership. Yes, that, that's an interesting one because, uh, of course, uh, well, first, most of the research that is done on leadership uh, is, is done by looking at how leaders behave who are in face-to-face -face interaction with followers. And so uh, there is, of course, research on virtual leadership as well, but it's not nearly as, as much, you know, than face-to-face than -face leadership. So but one can speculate about various things that are important uh, for those uh, young leaders leading teams remotely. Uh, one is the uh, sort of obvious one is paying attention to individual differences, diversity. So. Uh, certain personalities uh, are better um, uh, able to deal with uh, remote uh, working situations than others. Eh? You have to be very conscious, for example, 
conscientious. Uh, you have to be uh, not necessarily uh, extroverted. Eh? Extroversion is uh, probably a good thing for face-to-face -face leaders uh, to bring across their enthusiasm. But in a virtual environment, it's a little bit harder uh, to, to, to do. Eh? Be, be, bring across your um, enthusiasm, but even your charisma, uh, even charismatic signaling is something that is really based on sort of face-to-face -face interactions, looking each other in the eye, maybe even touching, uh, sort of uh, how, do you, um, how do you do that in those things? But uh, so I think first and foremost, acknowledging that there are personality differences uh, between um, uh, your workers. Uh, and so some individuals may uh, fare better in that environment. Um, I think um, acknowledgement that certain tasks are better done face-to-face uh, -face than uh, remotely, thinking about tasks that involve creativity, where you have to come up with um, uh, new creative solutions as a team. That's, I think, not so easy to do um, uh, remotely. Uh, so as leaders, I would say, well, if we want to have a, stimulate team creativity, we probably have to get these people together in the same room at some point. But for other tasks, like, I don't know, as I said, programming stuff where you can work uh, on your own to develop a code or an algorithm or software, whatever, then maybe something that uh, be done uh, easily done remotely. Um, and then the other is, um, as, a, as a leader in a sort of remote working environment with remote team members, how do you build cohesion, a strong identity, and how do you build trust? Now, that, I think, is, is key. Now, what most companies do is they'll invite these people a couple of times a year to the, the main office, and they have a party, or they go uh, with everyone to Spain or to a, a resort somewhere or a festival to, to get that bonding experience. Uh, bonding makes sure that you create loyalty, as you say. Of course, in certain economies, you want to keep your talented members uh, and keep them happy, and then you need to get them to emotionally connect to your company so that they don't uh, join another company for if they get a better offer. So it's, and I think that that is, um, I think that's really what leaders should think about is how to develop identities, bonding experiences in an online environment. And, and one of the things we know from our own research is uh, the bonding um, um, effects of laughter laughing together. Now, laughing is very, it's a very natural behavior that the humans have, not just humans, other great apes laugh as well. Um, but it is very fine-tuned uh, laughter. It's a collective experience. Um, and it only works if you have the same information at exactly the same time and are exactly synchronized in your experience. So if there is a little delay on the line, uh, when you have a stand-up comedian uh, per performing for a team, then maybe half of them will laugh and the other half haven't, haven't picked up the joke yet. And so I think these are sort of coordination challenges. Uh, but um, I would think leaders don't fall in the trap of only conveying technical information, or directive inf or task-related information online. 
it's easier, much easier to do. But don't don't forget about the motivational and the relational aspects of your leadership. Think of clever ways to get people to connect with one another. And it is harder to have conversations and connections virtually than 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 face to face. And then I think you might say something more about this on from an evolutionary perspective, right? Con- conversating, uh, sorry, having conversations face to face versus versus virtual ones. Yes, I think. Uh, I mean, how we we have evolved to uh, have all these, uh, you know, conversation in a natural way where we uh, share informal stuff with one another, personal, uh, the whole thing of disclosure, very important for bonding, to disclose something personally about yourself. Well, the cues are all there if you're together in the same group. And the context is really important. But if you're working remotely as a team, your context is your domestic environment, your home environment. The cues from your home environment are not necessarily about disclosing something to your colleagues at work. It's a different context. Now, all these cues, all these contexts come together in your living room or wherever your office at home or whatever. And I think that is really, um, uh, people are struggling with that. We haven't evolved to uh, not pay attention to these contextual cues. Eh? When I'm at work, I'm dealing with my colleagues. When I'm at home, I'm dealing with my family. When I'm at my uh, leisure club, I'm dealing with my friends or whatever. Yeah, kind of siloed. And I think what people who are working remotely right now say is that at some point they get into a point where everything is intertwined and they no longer think of work-life balance, but of work-life integration and everything gets integrated in their work schedule, right? So in the morning they can go take the kids to a kindergarten, they can come home, do some work, then they cook and maybe they get, get out for a walk, yeah. they walk again and they work asynchronously. And then some yeah. of them even say that, hey, this is, they feel it's better because it connects them more with their family and friends and they're not so much focused on work. Yeah. And that's, no, I think that's, uh, yeah, but, yeah, but the, yeah, this this series is called uh, "Does Remote Work?" So we have to think of ways in which uh, people can uh, be committed to work, invest a lot of work, uh, even in a remote environment. And yeah. yes, one of the obstacles to overcome is the 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 lack of these cues that are really relevant uh, social cues in a working environment uh, to build up trust in teams, to build up a, a sort of friendly relationship with colleagues. Particularly also, as I said, the integration of new colleagues to your team. If, if there's no sort of face-to-face moment when you're all together, introducing people to each other, people disclosing personal information about each other, which is really important. And then may, maybe it can work, but it's, it's harder work uh, in a remote environment. We are also in a crisis situation and we are talking about leadership. What is a good leader in a crisis situation, whether it's remote or not remote? Um, yeah, so it depends a little bit what kind of crisis. Uh, so evolutionary psychologists look at uh, different kinds of problems uh, that uh, humans face in groups um, and different challenges probably require different kinds of leaders. So 
Um, what is very interesting uh, is, of course, that uh, generally in a crisis situation, followers want uh, direction. They want a sort of a directive leader, powerful leader, uh, somebody who can make quick decisions on their behalf. Um, the primary, primary motive is protection. People want to be protected uh, by their leader if there is a, some sort of crisis, external threat. Um, so that, I think, is key. And good leaders, first and foremost, provide protection, um, um, basically saving lives, and saving lives at all costs. And that, I think, is very interesting in this current pandemic because under normal circumstances, you wouldn't accept your uh, leader, whether it's a CEO or a prime minister, to say, well, um, at all costs, people will be, and companies will be financially compensated. Will, whatever they whatever they lose in this crisis will compensate them. But under no, normal circumstances, you wouldn't accept that because you are, you ask from your leaders that they keep uh, the balance books uh, in order, that they don't give out more money than that comes in. And so, uh, but in a crisis situation, that changes. And we want uh, not a an accountant as a leader. We want to have a moral leader who says, no, protection is the first, whatever it costs economically. It's interesting that certain leaders struggle with that, uh, political leaders. Uh, so uh, people like Trump, Boris Johnson, they're populist leaders, and they think, hmm, what should I do? Should I be protecting the people, save lives, or... Should I be protecting the economy, if you like? So they're, they're violating, if you like, one of the first principles of leadership in crisis, and that is offering protection, saving lives at all costs. Uh, I'm not saying that that is necessarily good or bad, but that's the sort of first instinctive reaction. And, and then uh, an evolutionary psychology approach to crisis leadership would say, okay, but what what is the threat exactly? Is it a war or is it, in this case, uh, a pandemic? It's quite a different kind of, or an economic crisis. And it's also a crisis, but of a different sort. Uh, and probably our ancestors have had to cope with all these different kinds of problems too, and have also thought of different kinds of solutions or different kind of leaders who could solve these problems. And I think what we're struggling with is that as some leaders are seeing this as a war. The war is essentially a threat against an outside group that is clearly identifiable. And as long as you make sure that these people who want to do you harm are not amongst you, then that's fine. So that's uh, so that's sort of leads in our minds to an appreciation of more sort of aggressive leaders. If you don't have an aggressive leader, at least they uh, have enough uh, anger uh, um, and and can resort to violence if needed to attack the other group or defend themselves against the other group. Um, framing this pandemic as a sort of war situation is, I think, very is misplaced. It's not probably the right uh, strategy. Why? Because the enemy is not clearly visible. Not one sort of 
an aggressive response? What does that mean by anger? Why would you be angry? I mean, well, how does that help? I think that's uh, probably counterproductive. And so what you then may see is um, leaders becoming more effective that are not necessarily aggressive. They are directed, but they have a very strong concern for uh, public health, uh, the health of the people, which I think is crucial, of course, in this uh, pandemic crisis. And one of the cues, I think, uh, uh, of a lead who um, protects the public health is how much do they care about their own health? Uh, and so just thinking about uh, Boris Johnson, for example, just as an example, uh, uh, who, uh, I mean, people in the UK might be thinking, well, should I follow a leader who doesn't even care about his own health necessarily? I mean, if he doesn't even care about his own health, how can he protect the public health? And so what I think you see emerging, but of course we need more uh, data to support that, is that leaders do better in terms of protecting uh, their country if they are more concerned about the public health. Now, one uh, relationship that has been anecdotally explained uh, is the relationship between uh, having a scientist as a leader in a crisis like this and the effectiveness of the response. So uh, Merkel is often quoted as an example. She's a scientist, has a PhD in chemistry. Yep. Um, and so having a scientist as a leader may well help to be a much more, more adequate response than, than having a war leader, if you like. Um, and we know from research that uh, our colleagues have done in evolutionary psychology that on the whole, also women are more concerned about health than men. Or generally about the health of their families, public health, more hygienic than men generally. And so interestingly, this um, opens up all kinds of new sort of hypotheses about uh, what kind of leaders are best equipped to deal with this crisis. And of course, only time will tell as we do more research. But yeah. But it is interesting. And I do want to ask you as an evolutionary psychologist, why is it so hard to change behaviors? Why was it so hard to have people stay at home, right? We are not at war. All we mm -hmm. need to do is sit on the couch, work from home, sit with our families, enjoy the sunny weather, whether that's a balcony or just doing social distancing, wash our hands, uh, use our hands to cover our mouth and nose when we sneeze or cough. Why is it so hard to change behaviors? Well, I think, uh, well, 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 there's sort of two ways to answer this question. One is uh, with this specific pandemic, uh, it, it, the hard thing is because we ask people to do things that they would not naturally do. So the sort of natural response to a crisis is to affiliate with individuals that are closest to you, family members and what have you. And we're now asked to socially distance ourselves from them. So uh, the, the sort of gut response, the primary response is to affiliate, and now we have to distance. So that, I think, makes uh, this particular crisis quite hard to deal with. We, we are asked to uh, suppress on our natural instincts in, in many ways as, as social animals. Um, 
And then the, the second part of this answer is that uh, we know from all kinds of health intervention programs that people will only change behavior if they see a personal threat, threat to their personal safety, so they experience an individual threat, uh, and uh, the costs of the new behavior are not excessive. If they are excessive, these costs, then it is harder for people to change. And so you can pinpoint certain groups that will comply more and will find it easier to change their behaviors. That is those most at risk, personally. They feel a personal threat. Uh, the elderly people, people with uh, some underlying uh, disease, uh, um, but also people who have for example, vulnerable grandfathers and grandmothers uh, or fathers mothers that they care a lot about. Those people will see a sort of... Um, but the people who don't then find it more difficult to comply. Young people, for example, uh, they don't uh, experience any immediate threat to their health and well-being. Uh, for them, the costs are quite because they're at an age, particularly teenagers like my son, for example, who's 17. I mean, all their biology says you should go out and get involved in new networks, meet new people, expand your horizon. But you're now being asked not to do all these things. For them, it's particularly hard. And so if you look in my country, the Netherlands, at where the violations come from, of these um, uh, social distancing rules, and mostly from younger people, I would say. I understand. We were talking about an economical downturn, right? And this crisis is just looming as well. Hmm? What is your prediction on how employees will behave while this is happening, right? And and it just feels like it's there, yes. knocking at the door. Yeah, so after the pandemic crisis, there is an economic crisis. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, I think that is for sure, um, and that's probably already happening. The signs are all there. Um, I mean, it's, it, it, it's interesting because um, economic uh, cycles also uh, make people respond in, in very different ways. Uh, so uh, we had a, an economic crisis, of course, in 2008. Um, and what what happens generally during an economic crisis is that there is a basically a lack of resource or more competition for resources, I should say. competition for jobs, competitions for money, competitions for uh, whatever you want. Competition increases, and what you see then generally is oh, probably a positive uh, response is that people become more satisfied about their current job they're not laid off, uh, then, yeah, it's really important to hold on to your current job. So uh, there'll be less uh, job turnover. People will make the most of it, even though they may have some doubts about their current job, they'll, they'll stay put. I think that in some industries actually may be a positive response. Um, at the same time, I think uh, what may also happen is that um, people become very much um, uh, concerned about uh, their sa the safety of their job. So um, they become very much focused on what they 
currently have, and they are not investing in the future. That's um, in evolutionary psychology studies. We've seen that if you confront people with a sudden lack of resources, um, what they are doing is discounting the future. The future is not important. The here and now is important. So as a result of this economic crisis, individuals, but maybe also organizations, will be looking at the short term. They won't innovate. Innovation is a long-term perspective. It's sort of changing practices because you want to achieve something new. Um, learning. Learning in, in your, in your uh, work, learning new skills is also important for developing your own career. I think, um, but it's a, also a long-term perspective. And so uh, I think the, the dilemma is that um, individuals and organizations respond to an economic crisis probably by becoming very protective, uh, keeping what they have. Whereas what they should be doing is thinking about ways they can innovate despite the crisis, investing in themselves, learning new skills, uh, creating new markets and whatever. And so I think that that's a sort of a fundamental dilemma. So we know from research that uh, if there is, are threats, uh, cultures become closed, mindsets become closed. Closed by mean a uh, very strong awareness of what the social norms are, very strong compliance to those norms. And that uh, usually is at the cost of innovation, creativity. You're not creative when you're on a survival, uh, when, when, you're, when, you're, when, when you have to survive in the here and now, creativity and innovation are not on your mind. I think that's um, something we should learn from this. We already know, we can already predict how individuals and organizations will respond as a sort of instinctive response, and we should say, okay, maybe the best instinctive strategy is not the right strategy. Maybe despite the economic downturn, you should actually try and innovate and learn new skills, develop new markets. And I think what maybe this crisis shows is that if you're too specialist, you're not surviving. It's like in the animal world, you have... Uh, um, the panda bear, panda bear is specialized for eating bamboo. That's the, what they do the whole day. But then you have the brown bears who are omnivores. They eat uh, meat if they can come across it, fruit, uh, whatever is available. They're generalists. Now, certain conditions are good for specialists. Others are good for generalists. And I think specialists thrive in what they call the Goldilocks conditions. They're Absolutely, it's like the the orchid in the forest, just exact right temperature to flourish. And then they'll thrive much better than a generalist would. Eh? The, it's not the orchid, but the what is it called? The, the well, dandy dandy flower or something like that. Dandelion. Dandelion, yes, survives in all kinds of environments. Yeah. The generalist. And I think what maybe comes out of this crisis is that you're too specialist in a particular niche market. Maybe you won't survive. If you're, an example, if you are a restaurant, 
you may go down. But if you have, were always not a restaurant, but also a takeaway, a more generalist kind of approach, then you actually may survive during this crisis. So that's maybe also a lesson that probably Is can... that more down to adaptive behavior and just general intelligence? Maybe, maybe that's the marker. Flex. Yes, it's a marker of that. Uh, sort of, it means that you're hatching your bets, if you like. Uh, not investing in one thing and one thing only. That suddenly may not be uh, profitable anymore, but you've also been on the lookout for other ways to make money, uh, diversify. Mark, um, if you were to have some final thoughts, recommendations from an evolutionary psychologist perspective to the audience, what would be those? Uh, regarding what specifically? Remote work? Either remote crisis work, leadership, leadership crisis, um, or all of them. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, I think uh, uh, what, what a crisis does is... Uh, Sort of it um, no let, let me let's put it as it we, we have a lot of instincts uh, that uh, we uh, use um, to uh, get around all kinds of problems that we encounter on a daily basis now these instincts evolved in an environment that is very different from the environment that we have created uh, uh, we evolved in small-scale communities, I don't know, 50 to 100 individuals, all closely connected to one another, with relatively simple problems to deal with, if you like. So if we're then confronted with a new environment, there's the possibility of mismatch. And so our ins we, we cannot always rely on our instincts in that way. So. It may, uh, with regard to leadership, it may sort of sound persuasive to um, uh, rally behind a leader who acts like he or she is in war with the rest of the world. But I think uh, hopefully we can uh, use our intellect, our rationality, which is something that comes much later in our human evolution. Think twice and think no. For this kind of problem, actually, having a sort of authoritarian, aggressive, dominant leader is not the way forward. I think the same with um, uh, how we handle an economic crisis. If we see it as something that uh, we fear, our instinctive reaction is survival. But maybe we are not in a situation uh, anymore where uh, everything is a zero-sum game. I mean, probably in our ancestral environment, we dealt with zero-sum games. Eh? If you had uh, a piece of meat, another person wouldn't have it. But our economy is not a zero-sum game, because if we work together, we can actually achieve much better things. And so maybe the instinctive reaction in the crisis is to become more selfish, look after your own interests and those of your close family. but thinking a little bit more like uh, more uh, using our intellect, we may think, no, uh, actually economic crisis also 
delivers opportunities for new forms of collaboration, uh, for innovation. Not our instinctive reaction, but it may be the best strategy given the new circumstances. So maybe the message, and maybe I'll uh, leave it with that, is maybe um, we should uh, probably suppress some of our uh, evolved social instincts and um, um, maybe rise above them in some ways and create new ways of working, create new ways of interacting with people that that uh, that may be possible. Mark, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. Okay.